Welcome to the Roll Credits Podcast, episode number 17, I believe, at this point. It's a it's a pretty lofty achievement. I'm your host, Tyler, also known as Much Liked Online. Uh, going it solo again. AJ will be here for the next episode, I believe. Um, quite a few little plans for that one. Um, but I just kind of wanted to talk about some stuff that I've watched recently and some records that I've listened to. And uh, also kind of address some of the questions that we've had on the pod. That have just been building. Um, I get emails all the time of people who listen to the podcast uh, curious about certain things. And so there's certain things that I wanted to comment on and just kind of get out of the way so that way we're not receiving too many of the same email or question. Um, But the first thing I wanted to talk about today was a movie that I saw about a month ago. um, Maybe longer. But I've revisited two or three times since. And... uh, really just kind of wanted to get a recommendation out there for, um, and that is, uh, the, what year is this? I have the Criterion in front of me, the 1997, uh, Palm d'Or winner, uh, Taste of Cherry, which is a Iranian film, I believe, um, that I watched, not that, I, I had it constantly recommended, um, and actually the kind of catalyst for me watching it was I saw a lot of kind of mentions of it within my Instagram of of film stuff that I follow. And also on Twitter, um, just a lot of people talking about it, but the the catalyst for me watching it was I follow a a YouTube channel called The Misfit Pond, and uh, there's a guy on there named Perry um, who constantly mentions this movie as one of his favorite films um, of all time. And so I I finally, and and Abbas Kiristami is kind of a uh, running meme on there on their channel, so I was like, you know what, I need to watch some of his films, and just get into them, and Taste of Cherry was the most prevalent kind of one that was just reoccurring, and so I was like, okay, I'll get this, I saw it around Christmas, um, at a store, pre-owned for $20, so I was like, I'll scoop it up, you know, it's a cheap criterion, it's one of the early ones, so I was like, okay, I'll grab it, um, I'll just read the synopsis on the back, because there's a lot to this film, but, um, it's really difficult to put into words exactly how interesting this film is and how unique it is. Um, the first Iranian film to win the Palme d'Or, the emotionally complex drama by the great Abbas Kiristami follows the enigmatic Mr. Body uh, performed by, uh, I hope I'm not butchering this name, Yoma Hamayuan Ersadi. I hope that I'm not saying that last name wrong. Um, as he drives around the hilly outskirts of Tehran, looking for someone who will agree to bury him after he commits suicide, a taboo under Islam. Extended conversations with three passengers, a soldier, a seminarian, and a taxidermist, elicit different views on mortality and individual choice. Operating at once as a closely observed, realistic story in a fable populated by archetypal figures, Taste of Cherry challenges the viewer to consider what often goes unexamined in everyday life. I think that's a pretty light way of putting it. Um, I think this film's astounding. I think it's a landmark achievement. I wish... I guess this film hits really hard for me specifically because there's so many things in media and in... especially in modern-day film that depict suicide or mental illness or anything like that. And it's always in such a kind of positive light of, oh, things will get better, blah, 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 blah. And 
this is such a matter-of-fact, kind of blunt film that gets pretty straight to the point about, not necessarily suicide as a conversation point, but more so about the feeling of being suicidal. And I've been there, especially whenever I was a teenager and whenever I was in, you know, whenever I was 21. Um, from 19 to 21, I was extremely depressed all the time. Um, and honestly, hearing people say it gets better doesn't make it better. Um, it, it makes it actually far worse. And uh, I was just thinking about this movie, and I think on my letterbox that I wrote, I, the only thing I wrote for that for this movie was, man, I really wish that I had this whenever I was 16 or 18. Um, and yeah, that's it's pretty spot on. I think the performances across the board um, are absolutely amazing the film is directed astoundingly in the script specifically a lot of it you can tell is improvised but just the shot composition the look of the film the way it's colored it's a really slow movie it's 99 minutes it doesn't feel on repeat viewings it doesn't feel as long as it is but on that initial one you can certainly feel the slow burn of it so it's not going to be for everybody obviously it's a foreign film so it has subtitles. But I just thought it was so interesting. I thought the conversations that he has with the three passengers were really heart-wrenching. And I love the beginning of the film specifically. I think the beginning and really the end of the film are two bookmarks that work really, really solidly for it. The beginning is kind of like this thriller. And I, I didn't really know much going into it. I hadn't even read the back of the Blu-ray. Because I wanted to go in so blind. Um... And I knew that it had some suicidal tones, but I didn't, I didn't read the back of the box. I didn't read a synopsis. I didn't know anything about it going in, except that it was um, the, who the director was and that it was pretty acclaimed. I didn't even know what year. if it was. I didn't know that it was a Palme d'Or winner. Any of these things. I'm glad I didn't because I feel like my expectations would have been really high if I did. Um, and I love going into films with just no expectation or no idea of what the film even really is so it was a pretty ideal experience to have with it and uh the beginning is almost like a thriller it's kind of like almost like a horror film you don't really know what the motive is you don't really understand like what's going on with it and and kind of the intentions of the film and once it reveals itself it's it's really the way they reveal what the plot really is 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 pretty astounding and kind of just immediately puts you in that mood it's a very melancholy film it's a very dreary film it's almost dreamlike in the way that it approaches the way that it transitions from scene to scene um even just the color pattern especially it uses these really it, it loves to play with tone and color and and shifts in color um and, and finding multiple kind of patterns throughout, you know, the use of orange or something. And, um, I just loved it across the board. I think that this movie is really a movie that a lot of people should seek out. And especially if you have the patience and you like slow burn type cinema. Um, obviously, again, it's not a long movie. It's a, it's about an hour and 40 minutes, but I just, that this is like the highest of recommendations. This is probably the best thing I've seen in a very, very, very long time. Um, Absolutely, 5 out of 5. 
highly recommend it. I want to see more Abyss Kiristami stuff. I don't know if any stuff's on streaming. I'm sure some of it's on the Criterion Collection or, you know, on certain streamers here and there. But I need to seek it out, uh, seek out more of his stuff because just his understanding of film as a language is so strong. Um, and I, again, I love this movie to death. I thought, I also thought the ending was just excellent. I know some people are divisive on the ending because there's kind of like an end credit sequency thing that, that is after the film that shows kind of the making of the movie, but I thought the final, the actual like proper final shot was really haunting, and I, I love films that end like that. It reminded me a lot of, of something like The Wrestler, or uh, I can't even really come up, I mean, The Wrestler is the closest thing, but it's such an ambiguously dark <laughs> ending, but, it, but it's also not dark, and I think because the film really finds itself at peace with a lot of the topics. And, and it's it's a film that's about resolution more than anything. And, and they don't really explore why he's committing suicide because that's not... That doesn't matter, you know? Um, and it's not... It's not a violently explicit movie. You could show this to probably... You know, as long as they would able to read and catch up with the language barrier and understand that it's a, a it's a older film you could probably show this to someone who's you know 14 15 16 i think this movie is really impressive and i i would again i wish that i had this when i was younger because not only would i have loved to show it to so many people that i knew that were dealing with their own struggles and were just trying to find something i think music's really good at it i think that hearing musicians talk about their struggles and stuff like that that's why people connect with people like juice world and, and obviously my mom's generation connected with people like kurt cobain so much and artists like that and in film it's just so difficult to find someone who's that you know there really is anybody like that and i think i think this film is probably the closest that gets that sort of aesthetic and feel um yeah nothing but glowing thoughts about this movie i think taste of cherry is just excellent across the board if you can seek out the criterion i know criterions are expensive but just whenever the collection goes on sale or they have a flash sale here and there or if you can find it on streaming rent it for a couple dollars check it out i think it's just so good <laughs> i can't i can't overrate how solid it is there were two other things that i watched um within the past month as well one of them was um was Yellow Jackets, which is a, a miniseries that was airing on um, on Showtime for a little bit, and uh, I think is now on Hulu, but I'm not 100% sure, um, has quite the cast involved with it, but this show is really <laughs> kind of a, an amalgamation of a lot of things that, uh, a lot of genres and a lot a combination of, of quite a few um, strains of DNA that make it kind of one whole piece. Um, it's about a group of, it's a soccer team that, uh, their plane crashes and they end up kind of stranded. And, um, it jumps back and forth between time periods. Like, the closest thing I would probably compare it to as far as that aspect of the story is True Detective, the way that it bounces between, you know, McConaughey's character in the present and the past and another season that does the same thing. But, um, just a really, Yellow Jackets is such a dark, <laughs> disturbing, 
at times show that really has a lot of horror elements similar to something like Dar David Bruckner's The Ritual or, um, you know, psychological elements like something like Midsummer, And it, it gets violent. It gets super violent and gory and disgusting at times. Um, but then feels like a coming-of-age kind of sweet story, like something like Booksmart, and then also kind of has a metamorphosis into... Um, like a, you know, Real Housewives of Atlanta type <laughs> kind of serialized drama, very, um, m I guess, melodramatic um, would be the term. And I just found it so interesting. I'm normally not that captivated by TV because a lot of TV shows just go on and on. I recently tried to watch Yellowstone. Funny that I tried to watch Yellow Jackets and Yellowstone around the same time. And I just couldn't get into it. It just had this facade of, of old television. It reminded me something like Sons of Anarchy, which I don't think is aged particularly well. And I just couldn't get into it. I need to spend more time with it. I need to go back to it. I feel like I watched it on an off day, but I just couldn't get into Yellowstone. I just was not enjoying it. And um, Yellow Jackets was the complete opposite. It was the thing that I fired up right after watching about eight episodes of Yellowstone. And Yellow Jackets was just immediately... It clicked. And television's so difficult for me because... I've found a lot of the things that I like. I like Breaking Bad. I like Mindhunter, Marco Polo, which was on Netflix for a little bit I loved. Um, obviously True Detective. And, and mini series like Chernobyl. And it's really hard for me to dedicate eight hours, you know, or more to a TV show. Because I'm just like, oh, I can watch four movies in that time. You know? Um, and Yellow Jackets, I never had that issue. But between this and Midnight Mass, those are the two shows that I had. And... and those are probably the two shows that I've enjoyed just tuning into and seeing. Um, I enjoyed, or I, I liked, I guess, saw the merit, the artistic merit in Underground Railroad, but I wouldn't say that I enjoyed that show. Um, but yeah, check out Yellow Jackets. I believe it's on Hulu. Um, and they, they show reruns of it on Showtime all the time of it. So uh, I would highly recommend it. I don't want to say much more about it because I think... It's a show that is better enjoyed just going into it blindly. Um, and I wish that I would have known about it before it really... I guess it just finished wrapping because it was a week-to-week -week show. So, um, you know, I'm glad that I discovered it. I'm curious if they'll do... I think they announced that they're doing a second season, but I'm curious where that's going to go because there's some, there's some interesting strains that were left behind and some stuff that was... I'm just, I'm just so curious about where it's going to go. Cause, uh, and I hope they don't fuck it up because I really enjoy this show so far. It's one of those ones that I'm I'm actually actively anticipating. It's like that and Atlanta and very, very few others. Another show that I've been watching is on HBO Max. Um, and I, I was reluctant about starting it, but I heard so many good things from AJ that I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And that is uh, Peacemaker, which is the John Cena... Uh, kind of continuation of the Suicide Squad, um, continuation of that character from that film. Um, I think the show is really funny. I think it's really, this is kind of what I want from television specifically, and I wish that the super genre, the superhero genre would go more in the direction of stuff like this, because I think that it's more fitting. I would love to see a Spider-Man show with Tom Holland, you know, of just this and more serialized adventures because I just think that it's made for it, especially when you have such a robust villain, you know, selection 
as DC does, and can just pull from things endlessly. I'm really shocked that there's there's a lot that happens in this show that I'm I'm just like bewildered that they're getting away with. Um, specifically referring to that white dragon character, um, which I'm sure people have seen memes of at this point or whatever. Um, and it just reminds me a lot of kind of the old James Gunn stuff of like you know Super with Rain Wilson and and some of the stuff he was doing in the early 2010s before he landed Guardians. And uh, I just think it's really entertaining. I don't really have much more to say about it. It's just a it's just a fun show to watch. It's very very funny. The supporting cast is excellent. I was very cynical about starting it because, obviously, in the Suicide Squad film, they kind of tease the show and, and, and kind of, you know, there's some obvious little lingering things here and there with the Amanda Waller team. That they, they, you know, it almost feels like promotion for the, for the show. The show's so good that I almost overlooked that. I think that it's just, it's really well written. It's really funny. I don't know that I'm, like, crying laughing all the time from it or anything like that. It's not it's not giving me Nathan for you style laughs, but it never was going to. I think that's an unrealistic expectation of it. Um, I would like to see them push the envelope just a little bit more, because there are some things on TV that are, are pushing the envelope slightly more than the show, but it's up there. I mean, it definitely feels... It has that kind of adult swim chaotic energy of just, like, you really have no idea what's around the corner next. Um, yeah, I think it's really good. I'm, so far, it's about, you know, if I was to rate it, I would say it's about a three and a half out of five so far for me. Um, Hello Jackets is much closer to a four or a four and a half. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying Peacemaker a lot. I didn't expect I would. I'm so jaded on the superhero genre. Um, people know that on the, on the last couple of episodes, I've been kind of, <laughs> I've been kind of cautious of my, uh, anticipation for the Batman, the new, obviously, Robert Pattinson-led, uh, Batman film coming out in early March, just because I'm so jaded from the super genre, I just don't care about really any announcements or anything that's happening. Even something like Spider-Verse Part 1, I'm just like, uh, do we, do we really need this? Like, do we really, we're gonna do this again? Like, Okay, you know, I just, I want to see more unique things done within the genre, but I do think that Peacemaker kind of does that. Um, obviously, there's a bit of Deadpool DNA in there, um, and, and because it's James Gunn, if you know what James Gunn's writing is like, especially going back to Super and some of those older projects, you'll have a pretty decent feel for what this is like. I don't think it pulls, I don't think it pushes the boundaries as far as something like Super but it comes pretty fucking close. And, uh, it's definitely not one that I would, I would be showing <laughs> your, you know, if you have kids or something, um, because it's, uh, goes pretty far in a lot of spots. Um, but that's, that's a massive part of what makes it fun. Um, I guess we'll get into some of the albums. I normally don't talk about music very much on the pod, um, just because it, AJ and I have such different um, different tastes in, in music. He's much, much more central to hip-hop and, and things like that, and I, I'm much more interested in other genres. Like He's more interested in metal and, and hip-hop, and I'm much, much more interested in kind of singer-songwriter and, and jazz and, and things like that. Not that I'm not interested in hip-hop, but... 
I just kind of have more of an eclectic taste, I guess, across the board, um, and, and more of an eye for kind of finding, I guess, more, you know, uh, rate your music style stuff. Um, but there's two records that came out on the same exact day, I think it's February 5th, that uh, I was anticipating quite a bit. I guess we'll start with the Mitski um, record, her follow-up to Be the Cowboy which was uh, either my second or my third favorite record of that year. Um, behind, I believe, it was JPEG Ma Mafia's veteran that came out that year that kind of took my top spot that year. Um, but Mitski's someone who I've been following forever since the, you know, Bury Me at Make Out Creek stuff. And Texas uh, Rezanov is one of my favorite songs of the last decade. I think that she has such a unique voice and style and just aesthetic within this. I mean, she's an excellent songwriter and, and, and vocalist. Um, there really is no one like her. And uh, Laurel Hell is really no different from a lot of our projects as far as just the quality of it. I thought it was excellent. Um, a lot of the singles I had actually heard kind of just because they kept on popping up in my YouTube recommended and I was like, okay, I guess I'll, I'll listen to this while I'm brushing my teeth or whatever. Um, and I uh, liked a lot of the 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 singles leading up to it. I think my biggest problem with the record is that a lot of the singles are just the strongest tracks on there. Um, so that kind of takes away from it just a little bit. And I haven't listened to this record as much as I would like to, so I'm, I'm a little foggy on some of the, the song titles. Um, but I remember thinking the, I think it's the eighth track on there. Um, and then the final track were really solid. And then, obviously, the opener, Valentine, Texas, which I remember um, pretty vi vividly enough to remember the title. And then, obviously, the singles, like Only Heartbreaker, and um, some of the others were excellent. Um, probably a four to five on this. I don't. I, it's not quite hitting the level of Be the Cowboy yet. Um, it's probably, like, her third best project, but it's still super solid. I could definitely see it being on my year-end list. Um... It's probably in my top three currently of the year um, of, of records that I'm really enjoying. I, I would put the FK Twigs record, or I guess mixtape, maybe just slightly ahead of this. I think my four would be um, this one, the FK Twigs record, just uh, probably in number two, and then the Weekend Project right behind this. So Mitski's would be probably number three. But I highly recommend it, especially, I think, as a gateway drug into her her music. I think that this works really, really well. Because um, there's a little bit more of a poppy aesthetic and a little bit more of, like, an 80s, 70s kind of flair to it um, than something like Beat the Cowboy. And then I think could we go into that record and really kind of enjoy it more. Um, not as edgy and loud as her other albums with that rock aesthetic. I hope that she goes back to that because she's been slowly kind of getting away from that that more chaotic noise sound um not that i want her to do the exact same thing that she did on her previous records i don't want that from literally any artist that i follow but i would just like to see the polish of the new mixing and and the way that things are mastered now and obviously the way her voice has matured um with that with more chaotic noise not necessarily rock noise but just more happening within the instrumentals and more happening within the mixes i think that that's a big 
part of why I'm not revisiting this record as much as previous ones because there's just not quite as much happening um, aside from the songwriting, but just just upon an initial listen, and there's there's not as much happening in songs of feeling heartbreaker as there is in you know Geyser or or any of the others um, from from Be the Cowboy specifically. But it's hard to top, you know, I think Be the Cowboys a 10 and, and a 5 out of 5, like, classic record. I think it's just an incredible record. It's really hard to follow up and, and, and deliver. Um, not even just on the level of something previously that's so solid, but also just, um, you know, talking about, or I guess, following up a record that's so kind of prolific in online circles and I, I think that this is a pretty damn good follow-up to it again we'll follow Mitski to the end of the earth she could release five garbage records in a row of Eminem caliber stuff and I would still just be like okay cool when's the next one coming because um, I'm just I'm locked in at this point so I guess my opinion is kind of irrelevant when it comes to that stuff because I'm kind of grandfathered in um a record that, I guess we'll go to the next one. This is my number one for the year so far. Easily. I think I think pretty easily my favorite record of the year. And if I was going to recommend anything from this podcast, um, this is the thing that I would, I would recommend people to check out. Is the new Black Country New Road record, Ants From Up There. Um, what a fucking album. <laughs> I mean, this is just some of the most powerful songwriting I've heard. In a really long time, I loved their their um, their previous record uh, for the first time, which came out last year. I believe it was my number three record of the year, behind um, Injury Reserve and James Blake. Um, and uh, I go back to the record pretty regularly. Um, I was I was a pretty I listened to a lot of their singles that they released from that record. Uh, a lot like track X was really good. Obviously, sunglasses. Whenever that came out, was just like a massive splash of just like holy shit. Because the songwriting on that was so solid, and also just the chord progression and the way that they that that song evolves throughout. It's I think it's seven minutes long. Um, it's quite a behemoth of a track. This is kind of that, but elevated, and really brought up to the next level. There's not a single song on this album that I don't like. Again, because it's so new, I'm still kind of getting used to track names and stuff like that because I normally just press play on an album and let it run through. And I've done that with this album at least ten times um, within the last week. I've listened to it every single day for the last week straight. And uh, I think the... the Going from just the intro to the final track, Basketball Shoes, it's just a powerful... Re I mean, Concord is just a fucking behemoth of a song. Snow Globe. Um, place where he inserted the blade is, is just a... It feels like a cacophony of, a, of an assault of just sound coming your way and excellent songwriting, and it's just brutal to listen to. It's emotionally devastating. Um, and obviously some of the, the stuff that he following the band and, and, and following outside of it, kind of they're disbanding um, due to some, you know, mental health stuff and, and some kind of unfortunate stuff that I won't, I won't get into here because I don't want to 
litigate that stuff. Um, I hope that those, I hope that that member specifically gets the help that he needs and can return and, and come back and, and, and make stuff in a more healthy way. Um, and, and I think basketball shoes, the final track on the, on the record, specifically the first four to five minutes of that album is, is the best stuff I've heard since the New Year's Reserve album. Um, and, and the most, the most interested I've been in, and in the most I've replayed a track since probably when Wild Wild West on New Jersey's record came out, because that song I've played just a shit ton to try to delve deep and discover and, and find more about. And I love music like that. I love music where you can just keep returning back and back and forth and, and, and go. They, they remind me of, of uh, the best songwriting elements of... It's so unique. I mean, I don't even know really what to compare it to, but I guess other singer-songwriters would have been... He has kind of a, a Frank Ocean style, not necessarily in delivery or tone or even the way that he writes, but just such a vivid way of putting you exactly in the place where he is talking about and exactly in the frame of mind and the reference. And, and it's so unique. It's such a... It's such a I'm kind of envious of that writing style because the writing style that I have in my personal writing and, and stuff that I've done for newspapers and for articles and websites and all that sort of stuff, and even to an extent for the pod, is very blunt. My writing style is, is more adopted from Cormac McCarthy um, and his just kind of stated, blank, point A to point B writing. Um, and I'm always envious whenever I find people who can describe things and, and do it in an interesting way and really put you in a spot that's vivid. I used to think that that writing style was so boring whenever I'd read books all the time whenever I was a kid. And uh, to an extent there is, you know, you read books, something like, I remember getting uh, assigned, I think it was, uh, I think it was the, the Hobbit in school. It's funny, I've never read The Lord of the Rings, I've never, never seen any of the movies, but I, I, I'm super familiar with The Hobbit. Um, I just remember reading it and being like, holy fucking shit. There's one part where he's, like, describing the, the blades of grass, specifically, that I was like, this is so boring. And, uh, I hate it all. I hated it so much. I thought it was so boring. And, uh, there's a, there's a way to make stuff like that really interesting. And a way to, to create an imagery in your head, even with the most mundane things. Um, I think of, of Charlie Kaufman as someone who does that, too, with his films, and, uh, just puts you in a really interesting mind space when you're, or mind, you know, I guess mind space, um, when you are, uh, when you're listening to this sort of stuff. And I wish we had more artists like him, man. I, I think like, you know, an Elliot Smith style, Sufjan Stevens, like, you know, those, those type of singer-songwriter guys are just so rare to find people like that. I mean, thankfully we have the Mitskis and the Phoebe Bridgers and people like that, but it's just, it's, it's, it's hard to find people that are that skilled, and, and I think that there's a new wave in music that is that skilled, but it's fewer than it is prevalent, and, um, yeah, I just love this album so much. I think listening to, uh, going back and, li go back and listen to Sunglasses off their, off their previous record, and, and check that out first.
and then I would I would give Concord and uh, Basketball Shoes a spin from this from this uh, album, and then and then just dive in head first, or or just start. I think starting from for the first time and then coming to this is probably the, the more proper way to do it because you'll get a sense of the band's progression and 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 their style specifically. But this is just their style elevated to like the third degree. It's my favorite record since Ninja Reserve's album. It is uh, definitely a five out of five on this one, just be, just because of how much I've been revisiting it and how much I've been listening to it. And I I don't think that's gonna wane. Um, and uh, I would say this and the Ninja Reserve album are the top two for the decade so far. I would be really really surprised if anything beat this for the remainder of the year for music, which. It's so interesting when music peaks really, really early, because I'm like, well, that's that, you know. Um, and that happens a lot for me in, in specific years. Um, I remember in 2015 with, uh, with Kendrick Lamar's The Butterfly, for the remainder of the year, I was just like, well, that's that. Like, that's it. Nothing's going to beat this, and, and surely nothing did for the entire remainder of the year. Um, there was stuff that came close, but but nothing nothing well actually nothing did that year nothing came close um and i have a feeling it'll, it'll probably be this way now of course there's rumors of a frank ocean album and a kendrick lamar album dropping so and other artists that have stuff on the horizon and uh but i'd be shocked if anything beat this just as far as quality i think it's just i hope something does because damn what a year would be already off the rip um you know with this one and and mortal hell and Weekend and the FKH Waves records, I think all of those are super solid records. And uh, there's more that I haven't listened to as well that I need to I need to dive in. I always use um, people like Fantano and some of like the YouTube Reactor people. I just look at their like list of albums and I'll throw it in like a notepad and just go, okay, well, this is what I need to listen to. Um, I don't really share their opinions, but it's just a nice curation of like, okay, well this is what's happening in this sphere and. This guy covers metal, and so he's talking about this record. So I need to go in that one, and that that guy covers pop music, and oh, there's this. You know, I was I was pretty early to like people like Olivia Rodrigo and Dua Lipa because they just had like day one boom. People were like, oh, this singles out, but this new artist, whatever. And sometimes I don't like those records, and I don't find them that entertaining or whatever. And that was the case with both of those, but it's just nice to be aware of things before they kind of pop off. And I, I like being kind of a curator for my friends and stuff like that in the way of like, oh, okay, you like this, so you should watch this, or you should listen to this, or you should play this, or whatever. It's one of the more uh, interesting and, and, and cool parts of uh, doing this sort of stuff on the regular um, is uh, getting that level of curation. But yeah, absolutely go check this record out. I loved it. Thought it was fantastic. Obviously, 5 out of 5, that is Black Country, New Roads, Ants from Up There. It's available on every single streaming service, I believe, at this point. And uh, it's like a 40-minute album. It's it's super-duper solid. Um, let's go ahead and get into questions. I have 10 questions that I went ahead and grabbed just because we've been getting so many all the time. And I feel like I we just because of the infrequency of the podcast, we don't get to as many as I would like really need to sit down and just go through and, and grab like 25 to 50 questions and just burn through them in a, in a mega episode and uh get to you guys as more there's another question too that isn't on here that i want to address real quick and it's people have been asking why do you guys not call out the usernames for um 
or the names of people who, you know, ask the questions. Um, I just don't know that people would be that comfortable with that. Um, I don't know. I, it's not something that I've really asked or even, uh, you know, whatever, but I think, uh, having your question right is more important if you're actually, actually genuinely asking something than getting the clout for asking it. Um, and I just think that that's, it's a kind of lame way of, of, I don't know, maybe I'll change that, maybe my mindset is wrong on that, but I just have never really thought there was that much importance to it, uh, but, I don't know. If you guys want your questions, if you guys want your usernames or whatever, shout it out. Um, well, we won't do that because I don't want people, like, promoting their shit and doing, like, basically self-promo um, on the pod. Because that's, you know, we don't run any ads and, and probably would never will. But, um, yeah. I, I feel weird about that. That's why. We get that question a lot of, of people being like, why didn't you call them a username? I'm like, well, because your username is... Uh, I fart on Cox 97, or, you know, Trump MAGA supporter 74, like, I don't want people to go check out your page and be like, oh, what the fuck is this dude shit, <laughs> you know, or see whatever, um, that's not the point of the podcast, the point of the podcast is just, is to discuss film, another thing too is, uh, people ask, why don't we have a, a, a uh, Discord? And I'm going back and forth on that, on, on whether or not I actually would like to start one for the for the podcast, but um, it's just such a pain in the ass to moderate. <laughs> I just don't know that I want to deal with that, um, of, of moderating a chat. Especially with so many people that, you know, have so many divisive thoughts on film and all that sort of stuff. That stuff can become pretty toxic pretty quick. All right, let's get into the first question. Um... What is the best streaming service? This is interesting because someone would ask me this about a year ago. I don't know that my answer would be that different from what it is now. I think the best streaming service is probably HBO Max. I just think that their prevalence of, of original content is, is way stronger. Um, and uh, they just have the best library. I mean, from the old Turner Classic stuff to the Cartoon Network stuff to all the Ghibli films for the most part. Obviously, they had all their all their 2021 films going there. I mean, there really was no service that was giving you stuff of the quality. Or I guess at the budget of something like Dune. I didn't like Dune that much, so I guess I shouldn't say quality. But, you know, Matrix Resurrections on the streaming service and Judas and the Black Messiah on the streaming service and Mortal Kombat on the streaming service and Godzilla vs. Kong, like, all on there. And you can just watch those and boot those up. Like, I watched so many things last year from HBO Max that were new releases. The sudden move, Conjuring Three. Some of them for worse, and some of them for better. Obviously, I shat all over the little things, which was like the first film they released on there. That was a theatrical band-aid release, and then obviously Judas and Black Messiah was really high up on my top, you know, five of the year. So um, I own it on Blu-ray. There's some other films that they released too that I own um, that they released on HBO Max. So I would say HBO Max. I'd say I think Netflix is a pretty close second. And I think Hulu is interesting because they have all the FX content, but Hulu is just kind of dead for film. I and mean, there's just a lot of there's a lot of TV shows that are really high quality, but as far as movies and stuff, it's just it's a fucking it's a disaster. 
I think Disney Plus is probably the worst. Um, Amazon's pretty good, but obviously there's ethics to that, although you know, there's ethics to every single one of these streaming services because none of them are good companies per se. I think HBO Max is probably the best one. They also get a lot more of the Criterion stuff. Criterion Collection would be up there. I think the top three would probably be HBO Max 1, Netflix 2, and then probably Criterion Collection 3. Paramount Plus and Peacock are dog shit, so I wouldn't recommend those. Um, number two, what films do you have high expectations for in 2022? I try not to go into stuff with high expectations because I think that that's a pretty easy way to get disappointed. Um, but sometimes it's inevitable. I hope the Batman's good. Um, I think Killers of the Flower Moon, which is the Scorsese film, has really, really high potential. Obviously, The Northman. Um, the Lighthouse is one of my favorite films of all time. Definitely my top three of all time. It's that, No Country, and, and Killing a Chinese Book. Yeah, I go back and forth on that, that all the time. I've actually kind of figured it out that I think Lighthouse and No Country are kind of tied for me, and I'll probably go with Lighthouse just because I think it's the more obscure one. Not necessarily that I think it's better, but I think it's just less people would give that as an answer than No Country, so. Um, and plus, Cormac McCarthy, you know, Blood Meridian's my favorite novel or book, so like, you know, does he really need two slots? Not really, so yeah, Lighthouse is probably my favorite film. Um, so obviously The Northman has really, really high expectations. Disappointment Boulevard, I hope is good. It's Joaquin Phoenix and Arnie Astro, but we really don't know anything about the film, so. Um, and then uh, there was the, the teaser trailer for uh, Men, the Alex Garland film starring Jesse Buckley released today, and uh, I'm a big fan of Jesse Buckley. I find her to be just such a captivating screen presence. And uh, I hope it's good, man. I, I, I hope that one that one also comes out... I don't even know if I should say this, because, well, it comes out the month of my birthday, so... Um, and, and very, very close to my birthday, so... Uh, I hope it's good. Sometimes there's a bit of a serendipitous nature to that. And X Fury Road came around my birthday, too, and I saw it in theaters and loved it, so... Uh, we all have the same experience with men. I guess we'll see. What a weird title, too. Um, and you know movies are going to slap whenever A24 gives it the weird logo treatment of just a really, really bizarre logo in the, in the beginning of the trailer. Um, number three. So I hope that answers the question. Um, number three, what film? Oh, and The Killer, obviously. That's another one. Um, the David Fincher film. No shit. But you guys already know that. Number three, what film Internet Circle annoys you the most? I think it's obviously the Marvel one, right? It's got to be the Marvel comic book nerdy shit. There's three that really piss me off. <laughs> and I hate that this is going to be... I mean, the, I guess the nature of the question is negative, so it, you know, it is what it is. Um, the YouTube circle of, of people who just, they comment on film, but they only watch, like, they just don't watch shit, you know what I mean? They don't watch anything, like, they don't... They don't watch any of the stuff that's on these streaming services. They just watch superhero films, and they watch sequels to stuff, and they watch, like, A Quiet Place Part 2 and Free Guy, and that's it. And then they're like, oh, my top ten is, well, it's the only ten movies I watched this year. Um, and then they just shit on other movies because they haven't seen them. So, uh, that's my least favorite circle. Um, the most, uh, 
the actual most annoying group of people are gamers, and I think that sequels, like superhero movies and stuff, have uh, have kind of fled to to like the gaming circle, um, and and people like that have kind of taken that as like their circle for film that they they sit on, and I think that shit's really fucking lame. Um, there are some others too, like obviously like anime film nerds annoy the shit out of me. And then people who literally only watch K-dramas are annoying as shit. There were a couple of people like that that were in school, uh, whenever I was in high school, that literally they listened to K-pop and they were just obsessed with Korean culture and that was literally it. Um, and anything that wasn't Korean was dog shit and then everything that was Korean, even if it was dog shit, was like the most goaded fucking thing of all time and was a 10 out of 10. And if you challenged them on it, they were like, oh my god, fuck you. Um, there's a lot of internet people who annoy me there's also people who just like they pick like really pretentious shit and uh you know they just like refuse to admit that anything that's commercially viable is like good you know <laughs> like they're just like oh my top five from last year was you know all these films that literally no one saw and you're like what the fuck like you know my top five is is benedetta and uh this random film about a squirrel that goes out and hunts um, snakes, and it, it's it's a Turkish animated, you know, film that that has subtitles, but the subtitles are in Chinese because it's a commentary on governmental oppression. You know, it's just like what the fuck are you even talking about? Like they just talk in circles and just try to like one up people, and it's like how the fuck, you know, like come back to reality just a little bit more, like, just, just watch, you know, it just, just sit in front of your TV and watch, like, you know, an NFL game for once, please, or, you know, just go outside, touch grass, as the, uh, as, uh, Apex players would say online, um, yeah, there's a lot of internet circles in the film that really annoy me, there's also the letterboxed, um, like, pretentious, kind of, uh, how do I say this without being really mean, Karsten Runquist, um, Adam from, uh, Sardonicast, pretentious, um, I know more than you, even though I don't, sort of people. Those people really annoy me too. Um, but they have a little bit more validity to what they're saying because they actually watch the movies. So, but it does, it does feel like a pretentious, a contest to be as pretentious as possible. Um, so they annoy me as well. That was a really long answer to a question that was pretty simple. Sorry. Um, number four, what is your background in film and how do you know so much? I don't think I know that much about film at all. I mean, I just watched Taste the Cherry for the first time, and that's a movie that I feel like is pretty, like, baby's first foreign film. Like, I don't, I don't think it's really, like, I don't think I know that much. I mean, I look at my shelf and I'm like, I have Django and Jane in the Dark Knight, and Batman the Animated Series, and literally every single Spider-Man film on my shelf. Like, I'm, I don't think I'm, I own every Mortal Kombat movie, like, 
I don't think my film taste is that distinguished. I guess for every Dark Knight, there's a stylist, and for every Robocop, there's a, uh, you know, Husbands by John Cassavetti. So I, I guess I'm kind of discrediting myself just a little bit too much, but um, I went to film school for a little bit. I took some film classes um, in college and, and some writing classes and uh, some multimedia classes about, you know, just editing and, and video, I guess, creation. I don't really know what the word for that would be. Basically, people pretending to be a YouTuber um, for a class and making really, really shitty uh, video content, um, but just pandering to a teacher to get, to get stuff. Um, it's a class that people used to take if they were athletes just so that we could get an NDA and everyone knew that, so it wasn't really that much, but I fucked around with a lot of the editing stuff and a lot of, like, Adobe Premiere shit and, and learned a lot that way. Um, and I tried to make as pretentious as shit as humanly possible and really off-putting shit and, uh, somehow passed the class that way. Um, and how do I know so much? I mean, I've been writing for... Ever. I mean, I worked in a news station. I worked for an NBC affiliate. Um, I've done writing for newspapers all across the Midwest. Um, little editorial pieces and, and freelance gigs here and there. Especially when I was around 20 years old. I, I was writing a lot of shit all the time. Um, and I've just been reading stuff forever. Um, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast, but I used to read a lot when I was a kid. I used to read a lot of true fiction, a lot of true crime stuff. My mom used to uh, date a guy who would just read all the time. He would constantly be reading books and stuff. And uh, I think I tried to read a lot of stuff just to try to be like him because I never really had a father figure. That got really depressing really quick. Um, so I would just read as much as humanly possible and, um, and just try to garner as much information as humanly possible, and obviously I, I discovered films like Goodfellas, because they were on TV, and my mom was working a lot, so I just kind of was free to do whatever the fuck I wanted, um, and so I discovered, like, the old Mel Gibson Mad Max movies, and, and Kung Fu films would be on TV, because we had HBO, and my mom was a big, like, True Blood fan, so we had HBO, and uh, I pretty much just, like, I'd get home, and if my friends weren't on Xbox Live or on PlayStation, and there was no games that were out really, because we were kind of, we weren't poor, but I just couldn't, you know, afford to go out and do that much. I probably could afford, like, a $60 game per month, but, you know, I wasn't, like, going to the fucking YMCA and, like, playing sports and shit. And, uh, you know, I'd play games online and stuff, and then people, and then whenever people were offline, I would, uh, I didn't sleep very much either, um, and I would just watch it, I would just watch, like, maybe three movies a day of HBO stuff, and just really get quite a bit of a film knowledge from there, and that's why, you know, I think people my age, like, 23, are just like, oh, I haven't seen The Godfather, there's lots of little holes here and there with their filmography, and, uh, I have, most of those holes are pretty plugged in, I think, I, I have, I've seen pretty, I've seen every single Disney film you know, that's released, um, that's from, like, kind of their 90s to 80s to 70s output of animation, and even going back further, I've seen every, basically, Turner Warner cl classic film, I've seen, you know, a lot of the contemporary stuff, 
of that era that was constantly rerunning and stuff like you know, country and um, the wrestler and, and stuff that was just always on HBO and Showtime, like a constantly. Um, you know, I graduated in 2016, so um, I started going to the movie theater a lot around. You know, with my grandparents, they would take me around. You know, 20 around 2010, I really got into film big because that's I just I was like 12 years old. And just started watching more stuff. And, and in 2010, I discovered Inglorious Bastards because it was on a rerun, and I loved that fucking movie. Probably my favorite Tarantino film. And then there was some other stuff like Blade Runner, Ridley Scott, and Alien that I liked. Really fell into horror whenever I was a kid because my grandparent or my uh, my cousins would just get they'd go to a pawn shop and they'd get like DVDs for like a dollar, so they'd get like Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser. And you know, just whatever they could get. Lots of B-rate movies, like See No Evil and shit. And then, uh, my grandparents would rent movies all the time. And my mom would too, and so I'd, I'd just, once she was done with it, I'd, I'd watch it. Or I'd, I'd watch whatever movie they rented, as long as they'd let me. I'd watch stuff that way. And then, uh, you know, I lived in an area that had a lot of movie theaters and stuff for a little bit, so I would... I'd go to the movie theater quite often. My mom's boyfriend worked at a movie theater for a little bit, so we would get really cheap tickets and uh, go quite often because it'd be like two dollars, even back in like 2010. And uh, we'd go see a lot of stuff. And then um, around 2014. Or around 2012, I started collecting Blu-rays and just buying stuff. Like I, would, I bought the Master, and you know, for my birthday, I would I would I would buy Blu-rays and stuff instead of. Uh, I would still get a lot of video games, but I just kind of fell out of it a bit more. And then, um, just you know, my grandparents would watch a lot of stuff, and then I just, as I got older, just started going to movie theaters. And a big part of why AJ and I were such great friends was. Or are such great friends uh, was because we would go and drive 30 minutes to this little movie theater and uh, this little AMC movie theater and we would just go see stuff like every weekend from you know 2015 to like or probably 2016 to like 2018 we saw a movie every single week and then uh, he started going to school so we and I started working a lot more so kind of distance for a year and then obviously reconnected because of the pandemic and how much we weren't doing stuff and then uh, started this so that kind of answers the question of uh, my background in film um, but that that kind of answers that um yeah again another pretty long-winded one um number five what are your thoughts on book of boba fett i haven't watched it um i've seen spoilers on twitter and i've seen spoilers on youtube and i don't care to watch it again not a big star wars fan um and i'm not impressed with disney's output on star wars um sorry hopefully that answers the question um maybe i'll watch it at some point but again another massive fan and i'm not enough of an, and i haven't read good things about the show either so i probably wouldn't watch it 
Um, number six, do you think HBO Max can keep up with its slate from 2021? I think it's impossible. Not necessarily because they don't have the quality or whatever to do it. I think, obviously, they have that Last of Us show coming up, and there's stuff like Peacemaker that I just talked about, you know, that's that's keeping that barometer up. But it's going to be difficult. I mean, they've already announced stuff like the Batman is coming about a month later after it's hit theaters, but that's not day and date like their previous films were. And I think if the Batman wasn't coming out, I think that they would not. I think they would still do the day and date, and they would do the streaming stuff. I'm curious to see if their numbers drop, because there's just so much quality on HBO Max that I don't really see people canceling it that much. Obviously, if we go into another kind of financial drop, then that'll change, but I think HBO Max is, again, pretty far and away the best streamer, and I think people would have been... I don't know, they gained a lot of loyalty in 2021 because of just how good a lot of the stuff, or I guess not good, but how much they had coming at all times. So it's going to be interesting to see if they can uh, keep that subscriber number, or at least hold it. You know, I doubt it'll go up that much, but maybe I'll be wrong, I don't know, I guess we'll see. Um, what old IP, number seven, what old IP would you like to see return? I'm so sick of old IP stuff, but um, I'm always down for James Bond. Um, I think a lot of the MGM classic stuff, uh, I guess Amazon Prime's going to do it. RoboCop show, which uh, could be pretty interesting. I don't know. I think um, I would love to see another Blade Runner movie. Obviously, there's been rumors about a sequel to Mad Max Fury Road forever. I would love to see that. Um, there's others like Ghostbusters that I wanted to return, and then they just shit the bed on it. Um, so, they shit the bed on it twice. Um... So I don't know. I don't. I don't really know that there are any IPs that I'd like to see return. I would like to see. I think Ridley Scott did a really good job with the Last Duel. I'd like to see him make another Alien film. Um, although I think that's that's fairly unlikely. I thought Covenant was entertaining, and I thought Prometheus was really interesting. Although you know there were elements of both of them that didn't quite work for me, but you know I, I just I think that's an interesting IP. So I, I would like to see more in that. I think doing a Sicario 3 would be interesting, but I wouldn't want them to just do it just for the sake of doing it. But the fact that the second one exists makes the... You know, it's weird not to have a trilogy. Um, I think Paddington 2 was confirmed to be in development today, so that's cool. Um, and then obviously we're going to get... You know, I'm not even going to ask for stuff like Spider-Man because we're obviously going to get that, but... Um, I don't know. I don't know what really... Like, what I would want... I guess, the, I, again, I hope that answers the question. Obviously, everyone wants Disney to do the X-Men stuff, but, again, I'm so burnt out on MCU that I just could give less of a shit. If they would have got to it immediately after Endgame, I could see myself having some interest in that, but um, the fact that they've just been, like, kind of fucking around for the last... And I don't blame them because of the pandemic and, obviously, less financial return. Um, and you want people to actually go see these films and, and have that be a moment. But, um, I don't know, man, it, it's kind of dire that we're in this sort of, you know, holding pattern of film currently anyway, so, it's, uh, film's never been this weird, it's never, it's never really, uh, been in this much of a dire circumstance, um, I think IP is better left alone than, than trying to build upon it, and 
create these monolithic um, MCU style, you know, captures of people's attention and everything else. So, uh, not that many is the answer to that question. But thank you for writing it. Question number eight. Thoughts on modern day Pixar? That's a weird one. Um, I think it's unrealistic to expect Pixar ever reach their heights that they did in the, you know, early to kind of late 2000s. I think that run from, you know, 2000 to even, you know, 99 or whatever to, to 2009 is, is crazy. Um, and it kind of was like a signified end with Toy Story 3. Um... I don't know. I mean, Pixar is really inconsistent. I think that that's kind of the problem is like you don't know what you're going to get from it if you're going to get something like, I think Encanto was a Pixar film and, and Coco. You know, those are, I guess, kind of the more respected ones or if you're going to get something. I don't hate this movie, but The Good Dinosaur where it kind of just doesn't really catch on and have an audience. And I think it's, it's interesting to see what does and doesn't. Obviously, they're making that Lightyear movie, and they're kind of more doing sequels and stuff. I would just like to see Pixar do whatever the fuck they want. I mean, there's such a small barrier for failure with Disney. It's frustrating, because it's like... Imagine Pixar just doing, like, a Valiant Hearts-style World War II film. You know? In their animation style. Like, or experimenting with animation styles. We've seen that work for studios, like, you know, Sony's doing it with... Spider-Verse and Mitchells versus the Machines and, like, you know, Loving Vincent's a film that I adore and, and has a really interesting art style. I mean, obviously, they have to keep a formula and an aesthetic alive, but I think that once you are at the level of Pixar, you're kind of too big to fail, you know, even when you're experimenting with stuff like Soul. Um, and then they have that film Turning Red that's coming out that looks interesting. Although the movie just looks cute, and I, I'm, I'm kind of a sucker for stuff like that. Uh, Pixar is weird. They're not they're not obviously in their prime like they were when they were releasing the Toy Story trilogy and Up and you know Monsters Inc. I think Monsters Inc. is kind of the the peak of what they were doing. Um, but they they kind of surge every once in a while and really release something that's like one of the better films of the year. I thought Soul was excellent. Um, It'd probably be just, like, right outside of my top five of 2020. Um, I didn't get to that movie until about midway through 2021 because I just... Again, it's one of those things where Pixar's so inconsistent, you really just don't know what to expect from them. So you get something like Soul that's really good, or you get something like, again, you know, Brave that's, like, kind of just not really for anybody. So, they're interesting. I don't know. I still kind of keep an eye out on what Pixar is doing, but I don't watch every single film that they release, and I think that kind of tells you everything you need to know, but I'm also just not. I guess out of all of Disney's internal studios, Pixar's still the one that I'm the most interested in. They do have a bit of an original concept, and they've, they've been able to... I think the most impressive thing with Pixar is that they've been able to kind of escape the Disney um, void of charisma. <laughs> That exists. I mean, it's just not. You know, it's difficult to watch something that you loved so much get destroyed, and uh, swallowed up in, in, in corporatism. Um, I don't know. These are these questions are really, really negative. <laughs> the, or at least they're strangling. I hope that that's not the impression that I'm leaving with.
this episode because there's, you know, it's never fun to do that. Um, but, you know, I gotta keep it pretty straight shooting as well. Number nine, favorite Will Smith film. This is interesting. I don't have that much of a relationship with Will Smith as an actor as I probably did when I was younger, uh, mostly because he's just fallen off so much in the 2010s. My favorite is probably Men in Black. I think it's the only one I own on Blu-ray of his that he's in. Um, there's some others that I like, too, like Enemy of the State with, uh, I think Gene Hackman's in that. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, that's a really, really good movie that I like. I think that movie's on Tubi. You can watch it for free. I might just be speaking out of my ass there, but I remember seeing it on there, I think. That or HBO Max. I don't know. I'm getting old. Um, there's some others that I like, too, that he's in. Obviously, French Prince is, like, an iconic television show. That's on HBO Max. I love that show. Um, Pursuit of Happiness, people point to. I mean, he was just such an icon in, like, the late 90s, kind of mid-2000s with stuff like Hancock and Pursuit of Happiness and all of that. I mean, he was just kind of inescapable. I think those movies, those movies have kind of a, 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 uh, Seven Pounds, obviously, was, like, another one that was huge for people. Um, those movies have, like, a cultural significance just because I lived through that and, and Will Smith was inescapable in that time, but I've never understood him as respected as, like, a Brad Pitt. Because I just don't think that he's that. He has the skill, but I just don't ever really see him take the roles that are that interesting. Ali, I think, is a movie that, like, people point to as being this, like, amazing film all the time. I'm just like, that movie bored the shit out of me for the majority of it. And it's a boxing film with Muhammad Ali. Like, I don't really know how that's... That comes across as just overstaying its welcome, but it did. I don't know, man. I'd like to just see him take better roles. I think that like someone like a Denzel Washington just takes better roles than him and has more cultural significance because of that. I think Will Smith is like really waning when he picks, especially when he picks stuff like, you know, suicides. The, the first Suicide Squad from twenty sixteen to do it's just like what the fuck, you know. You just kind of scratch your head and you're like, you're one of our great movie stars that's left and you very rarely grace us with your presence and, and when you do it's it's kind of Oscar baby stuff like King Richard or or you know just a quick paycheck like Suicide Squad and it's a little disappointing I just I would like to see him really just commit to uh, to making more quality stuff I, I don't mean to rag on Will Smith again I, I like him and I like him a lot as a person I think he's I like him a lot as a person um he does a lot of really good work and, and seems like a pretty, uh, you know, nice guy overall. But, um, yeah, I've never, I've never gotten it aside from Men in Black. I think, I think those movies are really, really, those movies kind of fit in that, like, mummy, um, category of just, like, movies that people from my, I like them, I like them more than that, but I, I think that they still kind of fit in that, of, like, these blockbuster films that people from the late 90s and early 2000s and specifically kids from that era just rewatched all the time like if you were a 90s kid it's so fucking impossible to escape Men in Black um I wish the third one was good <laughs> the third one is one of the worst theater experiences I have ever had in my life um mostly just due to the negativity of the people who were with me who just like straight up did not want to see that movie when it came out um and, and that really killed it. 
a lot of it. I need to watch that movie. I haven't watched that movie since I saw it in theaters whenever I was, whenever I was a kid. I guess a teenager. Um, that movie came out in what, 2011, 2012? Maybe 2013? I don't remember. I like Tommy Lee Jones a lot, too. Um, whatever. On to the next thing. <laughs> Number 10. Uh, what were your f uh, films of the year for the past decade? I guess I get questions of that a lot of like one of my favorite films of the past you know of this year this year this year whatever because we've done the movie drafts previously in early episodes so people are like oh what's your favorite film of that year because we normally don't get to it because we're just drafting the, you know what we think people will vote for so that way we can win um, in those little games we play um I'm, I made a little list of, of my favorites this might not be respective of, of Obviously, some of these I haven't watched in, in quite some time, um, and then some of these I have revisited. I think I think the the 2010s specifically is really a massive case of like there are some years that are a lot stronger than others. Um, 2010, The Social Network, that's kind of an undisputed like for me. It's nothing even comes close in that year. Uh, 2011 is Drive again. Um, girl with the Dragon Tattoo would probably be the closest thing. I really like that movie a lot, especially since it's uh, it's uh, AJ's favorite Fincher film. I think it's still his favorite, which is kind of crazy, but because it's it's so up there for him, I revisited that film twice since he watched it about a year ago, and uh, that movie's really fucking good. But Drive is just such a cultural monster. There's a part of me that doesn't want to pick it just because it's such a like film bro answer. Um, and I feel that way about a lot of the movies that are on my, <laughs> on my year ends, but, um, but sometimes the movie's just the best and you can't really escape it. 2012 would be The Master with, um, yeah, nothing's coming close that year either, really. The Master's just, it's my favorite PTA film. Um, not by a wide margin, but it's got a little bit of a lead ahead of his, you know, what I would say his number two is, which is Boogie Nights. And then there will be one is my third favorite, which is uh, quite a controversial order, I would say, probably. But I'm a big T PTA fan. Holy fuck, I want to see Licorice Pizza. Please just make that movie available. Um, 2013 would be The Place Beyond the Pines. Love that film. Um, there's some stuff that really... That year is really strong, so... Um, 12 Years a Slave would be up there for me. Wolf of Wall Street would be up there for me. Prisoners, the Dean Eagle new film. Um, really, really like a lot. Uh, 2014 is Ex Machina. Gone Girl's probably right behind that with Whiplash as number three. Actually, I would say Whiplash is probably number one for 2014. Um, with Ex Machina is two and Gone Girl is three. Yeah, Whiplash would be my favorite film of 2014. I was really early in that film, too. I love that fucking movie. Um, 2015 is Beast of Donation. Probably my second or third favorite film of the decade. I think this film, I think this decade gets better as it goes on. I think the beginning of the decade is pretty weak. It gets stronger. Not necessarily in the, the films that are, you know, my favorite of those years, but just overall as far as just the volume, I think uh, it gets, from 2015 onward, it gets a lot stronger. Um, so Beast in a Nation is, is my runaway for that year. But The Invitation, The Invitation is probably my number two, and then uh, I would say The Hateful Eight is probably my number three of that year. Um, 2016 is Moonlight with uh, Silence as, as the honorable mention for that year. Moonlight's just an undeniably fucking fantastic movie. 
I think it might be that might be the best best picture winner. It's not called No Country for Old Men or Silence of the Lambs. I would really have to think about that, but I think it it's definitely within the top five best best picture winners of all time for me. Um, twenty seventeen is good time. Um, really, really, really love that film a lot. I would say Florida Project is probably the runner up for that year. Um, twenty eighteen is Loving Vincent. Loving Vincent's weird because it came out in certain areas in 2017, but didn't release in the U.S. until 2018. And I remember that specifically because I was checking for this fucking movie so hard. We ran a piece whenever I was working in news in really, really early 2016. Because I remember writing it about this film that had all oil painting and all that. And, uh, or it must have been 2015. Yeah, it had to be 2015. Um, no, because it was around the time of the primaries for 2016. Yeah. It's such a blur. Um, and I remember seeing stuff for Loving Vincent, and holy shit, and that's when they released, like, their teaser trailer. And being like, oh my god, I want to see that so bad. And I remember whenever we, <laughs> we did the piece and everything, I remember the, my director, um, her name is Ginny, uh, was like, what the fuck is that in my earpiece? Um, and I was like, this is a movie called Loving Vincent. Um, that looks cool as shit. <laughs> and everyone basically stopped in their tracks and was like, that looks awesome. And then uh, I remember finding the, I think it was the, I remember it came out in theaters and it wasn't even playing around me. And then I found the DVD at a, at a family video. And I bought it for like $3 and went home and watched it. And I never cried so fucking hard watching the movie. In a really long time. The movie made me bawl my fucking eyes out. Um, specifically the scene where he goes and visits the doctor at the end. Like he actually has like a face to face with him and talks about the, you know, everything. And, and the film's kind of bizarre nature is revealed. If that doesn't count, then it's probably Burning, uh, the Korean film starring Stephen Ewan from that year. Twenty nineteen is obviously the lighthouse, my favorite film of the past decade. Um, and then uh, twenty twenty would be Possessor, which whenever we did our year end in twenty twenty, I hadn't even seen because twenty twenty's distribution was so fucked. There were so many movies that just were impossible to see that came out in like late December or, or October, or whatever that didn't have Blu-rays out yet because there was a problem with pressing discs and then um, just the nature of even getting those and like all that sort of stuff, and then also, like, VOD shit, and it was just, it was so hard to find movies in 2020 that came out and watch them, unless they were something like Tenet, um, that shit was a pain in the ass, and obviously, because the pandemic was still going on, anything that came out in theaters, I just wasn't seeing, um, I didn't see a single, I did not, I didn't see a single film in theaters in 2020, not a single one, which is really fucked up. But yeah, Possessor, I've seen. I have it on Blu-ray. I think that movie's fucking awesome. I think that movie's, like, excellent. It feels a really dark void. That's the sort of science fiction shit that I find really fascinating. And then, uh, this past year was Swan Song for 2021. Um, on Apple TV+. Plus. I hope they release a Blu-ray of that, because I'm not... I don't want to have to keep making trials of 
Apple TV. Apple TV Plus was a pain in the fucking ass to sign up for. So I'm going to have to find like a bootleg or some shit to watch that movie. Because there's no way that I'm going to keep on doing that. Um, but yeah, so those are those are the ones. Those are all the questions. Um, I want to do this more often, these kind of solo episodes. This will probably drop a couple days after I'm recording. I'm recording on, I think, the 9th. Today's the 9th. It's a Wednesday. It's the 9th. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that. Thank you guys for listening. Um, hopefully Idra will be here for the next one. I think he, he will be. Um, something else I want to mention as well, um, that I mentioned on the previous episode, um, is that, uh, I will most likely, again, there, there's no plans in place yet, but I will most likely be appearing on the Duel of the Takes YouTube channel and podcast. Um, I'm a big fan of their stuff. I like them a lot. I've been having some, uh, I had a little conversation with, uh, Nate Martin of that podcast, um, and, uh, I don't know what we're doing quite yet, and I haven't really talked to them that much, but, um, I'll let you guys know the second that, uh, that we have plans for that and when that episode's dropping. So make sure you follow Much Liked Online on Twitter and Instagram and everything, um, my letterbox at Florence hyphen, um, just so that way I can keep you guys up to date on when that's happening. I'm really, really excited to kind of collaborate more with other people within the film space and, and content creators as well, just because I think people like them and uh, the Misfit Pond and others make really, really excellent stuff. So, um, and I think in, in some ways make me jealous of, of how good their stuff is in comparison to how good I think my own stuff is. Um, so, you know, Please keep an eye out for that. Um, that's almost more important than even tuning in on this one. I'll catch you guys on the next one. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, hopefully uh, the next one will be uh, just as uh, just as fun as this one was to do. And hopefully you guys uh, keep sending me these questions because I'm really enjoying doing this. Thank you guys.